and you are powerful and you are beautiful and you are mighty. You are glorious and strong. You are faithful. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful and the Bible says you cannot deny yourself. So this morning, we dive into that idea knowing that the God of the universe has invited us in to relationship with him. He has invited us into the with the one that created it all to the holy and the pure. The one that satisfies every need. The one that brings every resource that our life would need. And there you are. And we love you this morning. We thank you. We thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for those that are here, for those that are watching at home, and for those that will watch later. We thank you for the reminders of the important things in life, the things that are of utmost importance that cannot be shoved aside at any moment. God, help us, Lord. The holidays are a time to remember that. Help us even more to remember that this year as we've struggled and longed for so much. Bring back into focus, God, what is of utmost importance. And we will thank you this morning, and we will give you glory because you deserve it. Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven that deserves such glory. And so we fall down this morning with our hearts humbly, begging the King of the universe to accept what we have to offer. Our five crackers and our two fish to feed so many needs, God. Use them this morning. Multiply them. Help us to leave here changed and ready to be on mission for you. Jesus, we love you and we give you glory. It's in your name we pray and in your name we get to pray. Amen. Man, that sounded good. Y'all did good. The church singing did good too. So glad to be here. Welcome to this gathering of Heritage Baptist Church. Um, been a wild couple weeks. And again, I go back to uh, last week's idea of it happens right at Christmas time so that you and I are forced to deal with real life in the midst of God's uh, greatest gift. So this morning we're going to look at some of those things again as we do, but um, just trying to center and settle my heart and my spirit um, as we've been talking this morning and just trying to uh, work through life as we know it, life as we see it, and uh, the foreseeable future. So This morning, you and I need to be really brought into the idea of the invitation of God, what God has invited us into, uh, and how that supersedes what the world just continues to throw at us. We'll be releasing this morning for Children's Church. Very thankful for those that have been uh, faithful and working so hard to make this happen. Thank you. No reminders to go get your kids. Oh, you're stuck with him, Pop Pop.
Is it not nice to be in a church with that much energy? Amen. Every time you see him, every time you hear their feet run across the floor, every time you see a mark that they've made and left, every time you hear a baby cry, every time you have to change that dirty diaper, you're looking at life within the church. God has blessed us mightily. I pray with me just one more time this morning about these things that are so good. Man, we, we have had a way of, of cursing things in our culture that God calls blessed, and a lot of times the church has been the, world, the world's worst at it. I'm thankful uh, for so many here that see children for what they are and love them the way that they are. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. We thank you for the families and the children that you've given our church. We thank you for the life that is there. I thank you for those that spend so much time uh, loving on them, training them, and teaching them. God, I thank you for the parents that are taking these things serious. And Lord, I thank you for those that don't have children here right now, that there's a groan or uh, whatever re- other reason or they've not had them yet. I thank you for those, God, most of all right now that love the kids that are here. So much chaos is caused by those that don't see the blessing And all they do is see the mess or the curse or the frustration. God, I thank you a million times over that we do not serve a church here that is like that. And Lord, because of that, you've blessed it. God, I grieve for the loss of this year. I grieve for the loss of the babies that no one else has gotten to hold, no one else has gotten to know. Lord, I thank you for uh, the year before of the anticipation of so many kids being born seven, eight, nine more even now. Lord, we just love you. Help us to steward them well, to love them properly and hand them back to you, God. Not only my children with me, but the children that are here. May I love them well. May I treat them well. May my accountability to them before you be one of glorious service and love and care. So this morning we are just humbled at how good you've been. Thank you for the noise. Thank you for the mess. Book of Proverbs says where no ox are, the barn is clean, but much strength comes with the ox. And so, Lord, we thank you for the messes that have to be cleaned up, the things that have to get done, because they're signs of strength and they're signs of life. Help us to steward them well as a church and give our children not only to you, but to the world as missionaries and disciples and not sheep to be led to slaughter. We love you, Jesus, and we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I told you we would be going through some of the stuff in Advent. We'll be in Matthew chapter 4. When we open up the scripture, we'll be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We're going to jump between uh, 2 or 3. But I told you the Advent season come about, I saw uh, a three-week or or uh, three-point diagram or description of Advent, and I really liked it. So we walked through the first part last week, which was the Incarnation. The incarnation that God has come. This week is the invitation that God invites. And then next week, maybe one of the things that we need more than anything else in the world, the inauguration that Christ has come. And that is hysterical. We're talking about kids. And one bumps the camera. So if anybody wants to fix that, feel free. I'll take all the awkwardness out and put it on myself. So if that needs to be shifted, feel free to shift it back in the next couple minutes. So we talked about the Advent season last week, the incarnation of God, that he has come. What did we talk about last week? The God who comes is this. He comes with hope. He comes with hope. 
I told you last week, like, I love, I love the story of Scripture. I've le- I love learning it more. I love piecing it together from start to finish because I'm going to be honest with you. As I was preparing for this morning's sermon, I could not remember when the last time we were in the New Testament was. And I don't know if that's a great thing or a bad thing, but we have lived in the Old Testament for so long. I hope we're learning things and gleaning things out of it that bring the whole story together because I'm hopeful that most of those weeks we were in the Old Testament, we saw Jesus there because that's the point. When Christ wants to prove who he is, especially after the resurrection, what does the Bible say he does? He takes them through the law, the Old Testament, and he points himself out as we go. So in Genesis chapter 3, what do you and I see? God comes in hope. What else did we see? Well, the, the God that comes, he comes with a plan in Genesis 15. We talked about the story of Abram and the story that God is making a covenant with him that is going to cost him his life if he doesn't live up to his end of the deal. And right before that moment happens, God sets Abram aside, and the Bible basically says that the Lord walks that blood trail with himself. And Abram sets to the side. So Abram gets all the blessing without having to hold up his end of the bargain, which would have been sinless, perfection, obedience until the day that he had died. He would have failed. God knew that. So in Genesis 15, God comes with a plan. What do we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament? I showed you piece after piece that it's with consistency. God comes consistently to touch men, to touch women, to draw them out, to put them on mission, to bring his glory to the world. And now you and I are a part of building that church. You know, one of the the Christian songs that's been on the radio for I don't know how many years now, but there's no plan B. Like, you and I are the plan to bring about God's kingdom in this world right now. Jesus is using you and I. And I believe we'll see that today in the Gospels as we look at what he does with his disciples and his followers. What else does God, the God who comes, the incarnate God, come to experience life as you and I have experienced it? The Bible says that Jesus becomes our perfect high priest Um, I want you to understand what that means. Jesus was always perfect. He was never not perfect. The idea that he becomes our perfect high priest is this idea. You and I will never look at him and say, you didn't understand. The first time I realized what that actually meant, it, it wrecked me. There's no excuse. You and I stand before a God that has experienced everything we experience. And so Jesus, when he took on that human flesh, when he lived this life, when he sweat, when he hit his hand with the hammer, when he stubbed his toe, when he was betrayed, when he lost his father, these are things that the God of the universe now looks at you and I and says, I I understand. Betrayal, hurt those that try to hurt you, those that tried to hurt him. He is the God of experience. He is the God that comes in love. Job chapter 9, we see the cry of a man in desperate need. It says, there's no arbiter, there's no lawyer between God and I that if he were to even bring me to court, my own mouth would just, just declare my filthiness. I would just be broken and undone. There's no one that can put his hand on God and put his hand on me and, and, and bridge this gap, mediate this gap. God comes in love. What Job is brokenhearted about is actually a prophecy of what is to come. Then in Hebrews chapter 4, we see it again, right? Our perfect high priest. You and I talked about the incarnation is the only real, timeless message. It verifies your yesterdays. It verifies all of our yesterdays. 
It anchors today and it fills tomorrow with hope. If the incarnation is not real, you and I have no hope. If a real Jesus didn't die on a real cross and then get resurrected in a physical body, three days later, you and I have no hope. See, the Christmas season is about so many things. It's about being brought back and centered into life, being brought back into the idea that, that giving and loving and caring and family and even food and time together, and these felt, all these things are wonderful things. But the Christmas season is to remind you and I that God has come in flesh. And because of that, we have hope no matter what today or tomorrow brings. You and I have hope. The worst news in the world for a human being is still not felt hopelessly by the Christian. Why? Because we know God has come in flesh and he conquered all of our enemies. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. And he conquered Satan. And he did it all in a humanly form. There's meaning and purpose behind all of those things. Next week, we'll talk about the inauguration. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time in Revelation. But we're going to start again a little bit before. We're going to start next week. The inauguration of Christ, this is funny, is going to start in Matthew in the temptation of Jesus. We're going to start there and walk that story forward. Today, we talk about the God who calls. The God who calls. In the Garden of Eden, what happens? Genesis 3, 9. Who calls out? Do Adam and Eve call out in their sin? Do they call out in their disgust? Or what does the Scripture say they are doing when God comes into the Garden? They are hidden. It is God that calls out. He is aggressive. Why? Because if anybody ever knew the experience of shame, it would have been Adam and Eve. Born with total free will, built out of complete perfection, they are tricked by the devil and then fall into the trap of disobeying God willfully. Genesis chapter 3 teaches us so much about mankind, but the idea is simply this. When Satan interacts with them, he questions the word of God and then he questions the character of God. Those are the same two temptations you and I fight every day. Did God really say, and if he did, he's only withholding something good from you. If you and I will figure that out in the morning, that God really said what God really meant, and that his character is always for my blessing and always for my good. If we will solve those two things when we roll out of bed, that my God has said certain things, and when he says them, he says them out of the best possible character for my blessing, the rest of our days will go very, very smooth. There'll be no arguing with ourselves, no trying to navigate gray areas. It will just be the Lord has said it, I will obey it, and he will do what he promises, which is bless. So in Genesis chapter 3, these two, that no shame like you and I have never known it, they walked with God and then all of a sudden they were in their nakedness and they hid in shame. They had disobeyed him and now God calls out. He is aggressive For Joseph, later in the book of Genesis, God gives dreams to speak to him and draw him into the story that he's going to live. Now, it doesn't look exactly like Joseph thinks it's going to look. If you remember the story of Joseph, that young man probably runs his mouth just a little too much uh, like most of us did, right, before wisdom kind of kicked in and you and I learned, maybe keep my mouth shut. Joseph didn't know that. So the story looks different for him, but God is giving him these dreams. He is speaking to him and showing him pieces of what's to come. If he hangs on to that, 
then even if he's in slavery or in prison, Joseph still knows that God is speaking, God has spoken, and what he has promised is going to happen. Can you imagine the anchor that was to him while he was languishing in prison after being falsely accused? God speaks. We need to hang on to the words that he says. What else do we see? Well, in the wilderness, who speaks to Moses? God does. Moses. Moses. He's got a plan. I'm going to use you. He speaks to you and I. He speaks all throughout Scripture, and you and I see it. To Samuel, this one fascinates me. This is amazing. To Samuel, he speaks four times. He speaks four times to a boy. I love the patience of our God. I go back to the Psalms all the time. It says he realizes you and I are just dust. So what happens in Samuel? God speaks, and Samuel gets up, and he runs into the master, and he says, what do you need? And he says, I didn't call for you. Eli says, it wasn't me. And the second time, he does it again, and Eli again says, it wasn't me. He does it again. And the third time, Eli says, hey, it's God speaking. Next time, just stay where you are and say, yes, Lord, speak. And God speaks this time. The Lord is so patient with you and I. He realizes how frail we are. He realizes that this, this sin nature within us is hard to get through, that some days physically you just don't feel like it, that some days you're not listening, that you are diverted. God help us. I hope he has extra grace on our culture because you and I have to make decisions to slow down information, to slow down the speed of life. We have to navigate it through all of these good things. All these blessings that the world would say. We live better than the kings of old. We live better than all these people. We have to navigate that road listening to God all the while shutting out all of these other things that are constantly vying for our attention. I hope he's doling out extra grace for us because that is hard. He does for Samuel. First Samuel 3.10, And the Lord came and stood, <laughs> calling as at times before, Samuel, Samuel. He had waited until the boy not only heard him, but had the teaching to respond properly and the wisdom to do it when it was time. The God who calls. Look at Matthew chapter 4 with me, verse 17. The incarnate Christ will stay consistent. He will stay consistent with... The God of Scripture as given by divine revelation. I hope one of the things that you and I have learned in the last couple of years is simply this. God dis didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It is not like the Old Testament God doesn't know grace and doesn't know mercy and doesn't know love. And then Jesus shows up and it's almost like God is transformed into this wonderful, meek, kind human. It is not, that is not the way it operates. Jesus is the fulfillment and the picture of who God was from Genesis chapter 1 on. And so when we see that the Lord has now come and that the Lord is going to call, he is only acting the way God always has. Sometimes the stories in the Old Testament give us pause as we look at what happens when wrath and justice must be poured out on the unjust or on the sinful. We look at those and it gives us pause and we want to try to fit Jesus into some kind of new box because we want to separate him from the God of Genesis and Exodus. We want to separate him from the God of Judges. They are the same. 
The difference is the timing of the justice and the timing of the wrath. You see, what we see in the Old Testament, Jesus will himself do one day. The Lamb of God is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And as you and I live in his mercy and we live in his grace, we just swim in it. It's ocean filled. As we do those things, we do so with one eye or or our heart looking forward to a time when revelation Jesus shows up. And justice will come. The king will reign. And you and I will be blessed. And others will be punished. He is the same God. He shows us a picture of just how grace-filled and how merciful the Lord was or is even in the Old Testament. Look at verse 17 with me. Matthew 4, verse 17, the incarnate Christ is going to stay consistent. He has come, and now what is he going to do? He is going to call. The, the incarnation has happened, and now he is going to invite. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The invitation starts in a hard message. We're living in a day when a lot of people think they can navigate the truths of Scripture and the truths of God and still maintain some kind of credibility, attachment to the world. It cannot happen. We can love the world. We can respect the world. We can serve the world. We can love it like God does. But if you and I are teaching the message that even Jesus taught when he's looking at the crowds and he's telling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not telling them a message they're all really leaning into. When is the last time you got corrected and you were like, man, that felt great. Thank you. I didn't realize I was being such a dirtbag. I appreciate you calling it out. Thank you for waiting till we were in private. It's not a message that grabs people and draws them in. You're looking at people, you and I are looking at them and saying, there's a holy God. He is totally righteous and totally just, and we have offended him. And the only way to navigate back into that fellowship is not anything you can do, but what Jesus has already done. So what you have to do is get off the throne of your life and put Christ there. What you have to do is stop uh, relying on what you can do and what you can fix and what you can take care of, and you have to lean in and say, I have nothing to offer me. Save me. This message is not received by the world, and we have a church that constantly thinks that it can be cool and hip, and trendy, and have people drawn into it, and you can be as long as your message sounds a certain way. But as soon as you look at someone and say, you need to repent of that sin because you have dishonored God, and if you don't know him in fellowship with him, if Jesus is not your Savior, if his righteousness hasn't covered your nastiness, you're going to run into God one day as an adversary, not a child. We hear children of God all the time. Not everybody on this world is a child of God. They are a creation of him. They're not his child. The message you and I have brings them into the family. Jesus brought the same message. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To those that were soft and drew and drawn into him, he was as loving and as kind and as merciful as God has ever been. But for those that were hard-hearted and stiff-necked, he looked at them and said, you are sons of Satan. He is ferocious. He is king. And he's inviting people into a message that our flesh doesn't want to receive verse 18 while walking by the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon who is called Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen verse 19 and he said to them follow me and I will make you fishers of men immediately if you mark in your Bible underline circle immediately they left their nets and they followed him and going on from there he saw two other brothers James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Verse 23. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Do you understand, like, when you see the gospels, this is the interaction that you see. And Jesus calls it out constantly, and I'm going to show it to you even in modern uh, churches right now. As long as he is healing disease and feeding people, they continue to clamor, but not all of those people are disciples. You go to John chapter 6, and you see what happens when the sifting starts. Jesus looks at the crowd and says, I am the bread of life. And a little bit later in that passage, it says that those that were following him left. Why? Because they were offended. They were frustrated. He wasn't going to feed their bellies again, so they left. The modern church does the same thing. As long as we are upbeat and happy and joy-filled and you're going to be okay and you're fine and live your best life and all this other stupid worldly junk, the crowds flock. But as soon as you look at people and say, we are grieving God Almighty. We need to repent. We need to grieve and sob and cry in repentance. Why? Because he is holy and our lives don't match that. As soon as you start to talk like that, people leave. So they will not be right with the Lord because they won't accept all of his counsel. I won't be right with the Lord because I will not accept all of his counsel. And you and I are struggling through some of the hardest messages the world ever has said. But it's where we find our blessing, our truth. It's where we find the love of God and hope for tomorrow. 23, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem to Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So what do you and I see in this passage? We see Christ calling. He calls Peter, he calls Andrew, he calls James, and he calls John. And what happens in the Scripture says they immediately left. I have not preached many salvation sermons in almost 10 years of being here. Why? Because I don't see the church... We're not an evangelism conference right now. Your sheep 
of God. You are the flock of God, and it is my job to feed you and prepare you to go do the work. So we've not preached many salvation messages, right? Turn or burn. I've not done that because my goal is to equip you to go live the life so that the people you run into that don't know the Lord see your life, see something different, and you get the opportunity to win them in. You get the opportunity to share the gospel, and you are equipped, and you are ready. Why? Because you have been fed. You have been nourished. But this is one of those rare sermons when we have to look at the idea of salvation and make sure you and I understand it for what it is. Let me tell you something. If your grandmother or your grandfather drug you to the altar and made you pray after them a prayer, that's probably not it. If you were six years old and somebody laid the thickest message ever about burning in hell and you ran to the altar, that may have happened then, but if you left there and your life didn't change, you didn't have the peace of God, you've never had the conviction of God on your life, you don't have a hunger for the word of God, you don't care about the people of God, that moment is, is the most dangerous moment of your life because it has given you a false sense of security. This invitation, when you and I accept it, costs us things. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are going to leave what? They're going to leave their life. They're going to leave what they do for a living. They're going to leave their family. They're going to walk away from all of that stuff. And the Bible says immediately, why? Because when they run into Christ, his it factor, his character his stature was enough to say, I could let all of this go, and if I could just follow him, I would have everything I've ever needed. They did that. They immediately left net, boat, and father. They left security, blessings, and loved ones. They cashed it all in for the pearl of great price. They completely left their lives for his mission. And I love verses 23 to 25. Why? Because here's the exchange that happens. Instead of sitting on a boat and fishing every day, what do they do now? They're following Christ. And what are they watching happen? Sick people get healed. Paralytics and, and, and demoniacs are healed. Those that are afflicted are healed. They are watching this now. They're partaking in this life with God Almighty. And what it cost them was fishing. What it cost them was what they had grown up in, the life that they knew. It cost them that, but Jesus exchanged it for something far more eternal, far more amazing. Even if you could have it all at, hand it to you at once, you and I would never choose the existence that we have over what God is offering. The problem is we don't get to see it all at once. We get to see the first step, which is yielding. Peter, Andrew, James, and John don't know that a couple days from now they're going to watch people get healed. They're going to watch people stand and walk and dance with joy. They're going to be in the presence of God. They don't know all of that yet. All they know is he is worth it. And they lean in. They experience the incarnate Jesus. Why? Because when the moment of invitation came, they yielded and stepped in. You and I need to be working out that in our own heart as well. Look over at Luke chapter 9 with me. Flip over to Luke chapter 9. There's a cost of the call. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And they were going along the road, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Chapter 9, verse 57, it's, it's someone. I thought the language there was enough to, just to bring out to you. It's someone. It's not a called one. It's not a sent one. It's not a disciple. It's just someone. Someone out of nowhere comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you. And Jesus says, The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have a nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You don't want what I have to offer. You're not ready to partake in, to give of what is going to be required. So someone just comes up and they just mouth these false and empty words. Verse 58, if you look at it, what happens? And Jesus said to him, he, he talks to him about the holes in the nest. And, and verse 58, the call robs your earthly security. There have been a lot of people that have been Christian, that have had their earthly security taken from them by the call of God so that they could cash it in, trade it in on something heavenly, something eternal. And many have willfully said, take it, Lord, I will go and I will do whatever it is you want me to do. They've given up jobs, they've given up families, they've given up homes, they've sold them, they've moved, they've done so much. There are people that have been last year that have done all of that. You've listened to them give testimony You've helped them get where they were going. You've loved them and cared for them and helped supply their needs. There's a board filled with people that have given. They have their earthly security. They have said no thank you to because God has called them to something better and they've bit into that. They are hanging on to that. The invitation of God takes our earthly security and it removes it. Why? Because everything has to be on the table. The God we serve is worthy of that. The disciples had those things robbed from them. But at the end of the day, you and I still speak their name 2,000 years later, not because they lived normal lives, but because they did the extraordinary through the power and the will of God. That mission, that opportunity is still on the table for you and I even today. It will not always look like leaving and going. Sometimes it will just be digging your heels in, in the school you work at, the community that you're in, the job you're in. Some of, some of us are on mission right here for this region, for this purpose, and God's not asking us to go anywhere. But if he did, he is worthy. Verses 59 to 60, what are we talking about there? Well, the invitation takes your priorities captive. Lord, let me go first and bury my father. What a hard thing to hear. What a hard thing for Christ to look at and say, let the, bed, let the dead bury the dead. And a lot of times you and I don't understand the pieces of Scripture properly because we don't understand we've not seen God in all of his glory. We've not seen and been close enough to Christ to actually see, wait a second, there is nothing that really compares to that. We get glimpses of it. They are magnificent. They are beautiful. They are the idea when heaven touches earth, like these moments are unbelievable, but to stand in his presence, there would be nothing that could be offered to you and I that would deviate or divert our attention, even the burying of our own parents. The mission is the mission. 
The invitation to work with, to work for, God Almighty takes your priorities captive. In verses 61 and 62, the mission of Christ will consume your attention. The prophet Elisha knew this well. 1 Kings chapter 19 is the story where he is called into ministry. What happens? Elijah walks by and places his cloak on Elisha, and then all of a sudden, Elisha is taking his whole life and cashing it in for the mission that God has. The Bible says he has 12 yoke of oxen. This was a rich man. He's a rich man plowing the field. And he takes the yoke, and he takes the oxen, and he basically throws a, a sacrificial party where he feeds the village and leaves on mission. Jesus gives us this idea, whoever puts his hand to the plow and starts working for the Lord but looks back and longs, I hope you get two stories out of that. I hope you get Elisha's story out of that. Why? Because he just destroys the yoke. I can't go back. I've burnt it. I've cashed it all in. I've fed it to my friends. We're having a party. Why? Because the Lord has something in store for me. I'm going to feed you, and then I'm going to go feed people spiritually for the rest of my life. That's what happens. I hope the other story is this. What, who else looked back in Scripture? Lot's wife. Lot's wife. Adam and Gomorrah are being destroyed, and the angels look at them and say, do not look back. And what is the idea of looking back? I don't think it's out of curiosity. I think it's out of longing. A longing to go back. What have I just lost? What did I cash in? What did I give up? The young ones that are here this morning, you teenagers, I'm begging you to deal with this concept right now. Is he worthy? What are you going to give up to follow him? What's he going to call for? What's he going to ask for? And when that moment comes, are you going to look back and long for what the world has for you? Because let me tell you something. Every advertisement you pull up on your phone or TV wants you to look and long for other things. And God wants you to be content. God wants you to be focused, driven, loving. Look at chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Verse 3, go your way before, uh, go your way before I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. That call, I don't believe, is one that is descriptive for every Christian that ever lives to go. No knapsack, no money, no plan, just go. I don't believe that to be the case for every person. Some people in the church's history, that has been their life. George Mueller, read his biographies, read his testimonies. That was that man's life. Never asked for money. Yet his tombstone is paid for by the orphans that he took care of, and he never asked a man for a dollar. All he did was pray, <laughs> and the Lord provided. Orphanage, 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 food. Right? There's a couple of different stories that say they sat down in the morning for breakfast. They didn't have anything to eat, but George Mueller said, we're going to come, we're going to sit, we're going to pray, we're going to thank God. And all of a sudden, on two different occasions, there was a knock at the door. The first time, the baker shows up from the city and says, I got woke up early this morning and was told to bake you food. That's one of George Mueller's stories. They sit down and they pray for the food and it shows up. The other one was the dairyman shows up and the wheel has fallen off his wagon out in front of the orphanage and if he doesn't offload it, it's going to go bad. They sit down, they pray, and God provides. Not every Christian story is exactly like that. 
But Jesus is looking at these people and saying, time is of the essence. Lay down every weight, right? Remember Hebrews? Lay down every sin and every weight that besets you, that takes you away from the mission, and get going. Where Christ is going, he sends his disciples to turn the soil, to get ready to plant the seeds. See, where do these 72 go? They go where Jesus is coming next. The 72 go, and they get started. And then Christ comes in. I love this. It's a beautiful picture of the church. He has sent you and I to go, to turn the soil, to plant the seeds. And then when he shows up and he brings a harvest, and I love this passage because he basically tells them to pray a self-fulfilling prayer. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What did he just sent them out to do? To be laborers. And so if they're praying for laborers, they have to figure out, wait a second, that's me. Partly this is on me. He has sent me to do this. So the invitation God gives comes through us, not just to us. You are a conduit of the invitation of God. Where Christ is going, his disciples are used to turn the soil, to plant the seeds, to get ready for what is next. And when Jesus shows up, the harvest comes. When the Holy Spirit shows up, the harvest comes. So there's a cost to the call. It's going to cost us something. This easy believism has, has really sent uh, even denominations, whole denominations de- deny eternal security. Why? Because so many Christians have made easy believism a part of their theology. Like, just pray this prayer and you'll be fine. It's a get out of hell free card. Just pray it once. I'm going to drag you to the altar. Just pray it right after me. Just repeat these words. Instead of letting people make a decision that yields their allegiance to God, we want them to basically come across this manufactured prayer like it does anything. If you didn't mean it from the heart, if you didn't yield, if you didn't get off the throne, if Christ didn't take his place, nothing happened there but the exchange of air. Oxygen for carbon dioxide, it just sounded nice. You just made your meemaw feel better or your papaw that was the preacher, right? And every third week you were praying to be saved. Why? Because he said you better. Listen, people have destroyed one of the greatest pieces of theology that we have to offer, which is the security of the believer inside of Jesus Christ. John 17 says we are one with him. It never says in Scripture that he casts you out as a family member, a son or a daughter. You never got booted. It says we are one. Ephesians says we have been sealed up with the Holy Spirit as a down payment for redemption. You've been given the Holy Spirit. God has given you that so that you know heaven is for sure. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts of sin. He draws us close. He makes us love the Word. He makes us love God's people. He makes us want to do biblical things. And that's why I'm telling you, if you've ever prayed that prayer, but you are not interested in biblical things, you better rethink the moment that you called. Because if you left the same way you come in, you didn't experience Jesus Christ. Flip over to Luke 19. Let's see it again. It's an invitation with purpose. Who is it this time? It's Zacchaeus. Everybody's singing that song in their head right now. I know it. Was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Right? Climbed to the top of a sycamore tree. Sounds all sweet and nice. Who was Zacchaeus? He was a hated man. He was a tax collector. He was a scoundrel. He was a sinner. He was a turncoat. 
he was a Jew working for Rome. The only thing worse than him was a Samaritan. Zacchaeus was a horrible person. And Jesus comes in, and what happens? Zacchaeus tries to get a picture. He wants to see him. He wants to be a part of the spectacle. The circus is coming to town, and he wants to see what's going on. And what happens? Jesus, who calls? Jesus calls. Zacchaeus, come here. We're having dinner. I'm going to have a meal at your house. What happens? Jesus calls the tax collector down out of the tree. Jesus calls the scoundrel down for dinner. And Jesus calls this sinner to salvation. This is an invitation with purpose. Sinful people. One of the hardest things about where we live in West Virginia is that the good old boy mentality has really robbed a piece of the gospel of its ferocious nature. Why? Because a lot of times you and I are dealing with people that don't think they're all that bad. I'm pretty good. I mean, I do this and I do a little bit of that. I do, you know, every once in a while I'll do that. But I'm a pretty good person. Right? Like I take care of people and I'm here and my family's here and I'm doing these things that, that are just, I'm just not like them. It's the most dangerous person to be in God's kingdom. It's the most dangerous person to be. Unless you and I understand that we are a Zacchaeus. We're the scoundrel and the sinner. Unless we understand the purity and the holiness of God, we can never come to salvation. You can't woo someone into salvation without letting them know they're a sinner. Because the peace of the gospel is, I am broken, but he is whole. I am a mess, but he loves me. I am never going to achieve what I'm trying to achieve, but Jesus achieved it for me. You can't win half good people into the gospel. You and I only win people to salvation that understand I am a train wreck. I am an enemy of God. If given the opportunity, just like Satan tried, if given the opportunity, I would dethrone him and I would sit on the throne myself. If given the opportunity, I would have driven the nails in Jesus Christ because I didn't like his message. I'm fine. If you and I don't understand that, we have never gotten close enough to the gospel, the real message to know the invitation of what God actually offers. We look at people and, and we are frustrated with their lifestyle and we look at people in the Old Testament and we beat them up. Listen, you and I are just as bad. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes we are way worse. You say, well, why is that? Well, because you and I have the completed word of God <laughs> as a backdrop for the life that we're living. So we do so with knowledge of things that we know we shouldn't do and we do them anyway. What happens in this beautiful picture of the gospel, though, in verse 6, it says, So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. The one that could condemn him, right, is the one he receives joyfully. See, that's the kind of love you and I as the church ought to be offering to people. There's going to come a moment when Jesus is going to deal with the sinful behaviors and Zacchaeus in, in that moment is going to be feeling that conviction because he brings it up and he says, Lord, if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back. I give to the poor. Like he, he's well aware of his failures. But the one that could have condemned him welcomes him in. And Zacchaeus 
receives him joyfully. What happens in verse 7, though? These pesky religious people, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The most dangerous person to be in that story is not Zacchaeus, the sinner. It's the one standing there comparing themselves to that sinner and thinking, you know what, I'm not that bad. Scroll down to verse 10, verse 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. If it doesn't make your hair stand up that the Son of Man has come to seek, you need to read it again. You need to figure that one out. Because the sheep was lost. And you and I were just standing there bleating. You know what happens when a sheep's been lost for a long time? It stops bleating and just stands there. They are dumb animals. The Bible calls us sheep. Sheep need a flock. Sheep need a shepherd. And he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a beautiful invitation. It's an invitation that changes lives. You see, Adam and Eve walked out and answered the call. God called. They were hiding. Abram gives up city and security for the promise of a son, a people, and a land. The same thing over and over and over. God asks us to give things, and then he blesses us back in ways that we will never understand the beauty, the magnitude of it. Abram does the same thing. He has to leave a walled city. Do you know what that meant in that time? You were basically as good as dead. He leaves a walled city to travel the rest of his life as a nomad, setting up a tent, going from here to there. But he does so on the promise that God is going to bless him with a son, a people, and a land. Jacob walked with a limp after answering God's call. He wrestles with the Lord, and he walks with a limp the rest of his life. For Gideon, he answered a call that saw him as he could be, not as who he was. Do you remember that story? It's beautiful. Reminds me of me. Gideon is in the hole. He's a coward. He's trying to scrape up a little bit of food, and God shows up. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, Hello, mighty man of valor. God calls you and I according to what we could be, according to what's possible, not who we are at the moment. That is good news for you and I. David stood before giants. He also ran for his life. He kept shady company. That's how y'all ended up with me. And he ruled a kingdom for 40 years. That's the life, the invitation that God calls. It's hard, it's messy, it's victorious, it's beautiful, it's blessed. Daniel was led to the lion's den after answering his call. Mary answered and bore the shame of being an unwed mother for the rest of her life. She may have been loved and cared for in the community, but in the back of people's minds, she was someone that they would have looked down upon for a really long time. And I'm telling you right now, the only thing that would have changed their mind is if they would have seen the resurrected Jesus. Why? Because who actually believes in a virgin birth? That don't happen. Good try, though, Mary. I mean, Joseph's a good dude and all. Jesus is a good boy, right? But virgin births don't happen. Oh, now, he's getting crucified. Well, he's probably getting what he deserves. Okay, wait a second. Now he's here, (laughs) and we're talking and having a meal. All right, Mary, good story. Should have told it a little better. Maybe I would have believed it. No, you wouldn't have. 
When she answers the call and says yes to God, when she says the Lord's will be done, she, bore, she, she takes upon herself the shame for the rest of her life of knowing that people are going to look at her and not believe the story she's telling. And for the disciples, answering the call would eventually cost them their lives. But what they woke up to was out of this world. What they woke up to was the blessings of God. What they were given was an opportunity to live a life that you and I still talk about. And finally, as I close this morning, the only acceptable response to a call like this, Revelation chapter 20, or 22, I'm sorry, 22 verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That is Jesus. Amen. And to the response, John says, come, Lord Jesus, come. The only response you and I can have when we run into a Jesus like this is to long to be with him. As you and I watch the days, as you flip on the news and you see the chaos, make it remind you of the idea that this is not our home. This is not our home. The chaos on the news, the things that you can't control, right? Like we get so caught up in all of these big things that we cannot control, that we lose track of loving our family, loving our neighbor, loving our church. This world is not your home. That house that you live in is not your house. Like, you don't believe me? Don't pay the taxes, right? We'll see what happens. It's not yours. None of this is yours. You and I need to be longing for Jesus. We need to be built into that story where we're longing for him to come. Why? Because John saw him. John saw him in, I need you to understand. John saw him in this world. John saw him resurrected. And then John gets the opportunity to see him in heaven. Now, when you see the picture, it doesn't matter how good your life is right now. You say, come, Lord Jesus. I want to be a part of this. To come to him is to experience the way, the truth, and the life. For the first time in your life, it is to experience the way, the truth, and the life. To serve him is to feel the kindness and the grace of the eternal Prince of Peace. In the hardest of moments, peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. To sacrifice for him is to be eternally blessed. You will not be able to outgive God. To know him is to cry out for his coming again. That is next week's sermon. He has come once. He will come again. And in that hope, you and I get to live. To say yes to him is to put your hand to the plow and never to look back. They come this morning to play. I wish I had better words to give you the description of Christ. I wish I could just sell it to the point. I think even with the disciples, they got to see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Like the Lord worked so wonderfully with them, working them into this moment where they were going to give their lives for the gospel. It didn't just show up in a day. So I, I can't paint the picture for you. As good as good can be, as loving as loving can be, the best relationship you've ever had or ever heard of, all of these things pale in comparison. All I can do is tell you this. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not going to long for him. Friends, once a week, don't cut it. I grieve for myself as well. We need a hunger. We need to pray for a hunger for the word of God because in it, you and I will see more of Christ opened up. 
And the more of him we see, the more we will long to serve him, the more we will long to be with him, the more our feet will basically be elevated off of this world. We won't be so stuck to Monday mornings. Tuesday evenings. We won't be so wore out on Thursday that we're begging for Saturday. We won't be so worried about our next vacation because we just want to escape this life. Those things will die because you and I will be living on mission for God and He is worthy. I can't paint that picture for you. I wish I could. All I can do is tell you read the Word. Put yourself in Zacchaeus' shoes. Be the nasty scoundrel. Put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan woman who met Jesus and found out there was love and care and there was truth and there was correction even in the middle of all of that. He could correct her theology and love her at the same time. Put yourself as Mary Magdalene. Put yourself as as one of the, the, the scoundrels of the day. Realize how much the Lord loves you. I can't paint a picture good enough for you to lay down this world and to reach His. I can just beg you, get hungry for the Word of God around and see people that are living that life and long for what they have. Pray for hunger. God will give it. Stand this morning. If you need to come, you need to pray. The altar's open.